Hello, you're listening to the Thoroughly Good Classical Music Podcast. My name is John Jacob. You can subscribe to the podcast via Apple, Google, Amazon or Audible Podcasts or find the series on Spotify, Podfollow, TuneIn or even Audioboom. This is episode number 99. When I was asked whether I'd like to speak to documentary maker John Bridcut about his latest film, I jumped at the chance. I sent excitable emails. Bridcut's back catalogue of documentaries have, I now realise, listening back to this interview, been appointment to watch stuff for me, documenting much of Benjamin Britten's life and the stories that swirled around it, as well as profiles of world-renowned musicians whose names form part of the classical music lexicon as much as the music does. Bridcut's last film about Dame Janet Baker was especially touching, a tearjerker that took many by surprise. His latest film, broadcast on the 26th of September 2020 on the BBC, celebrates the life and 90th birthday of conductor Bernard Heitink. The film has all the hallmarks of a John Bridcut production, space, time, warmth and a simple but well-measured kind of deference that positions the art form comfortably in the niche it best suits. For some, watching Bridcut's work is a little like receiving a gift you never really knew you wanted. Here the art form is framed in something that suits your own perspective of the world without you even realising what that perspective was. The topics of conversation that follows in this interview aren't necessarily focused on the subject of Bridcut's latest documentary, so much as the work that the documentary maker does himself, the style of his storytelling, the pace, for example. My rather ham-fisted questions attempt to get to the incongruity highlighted by the way Bridcut's low-key, self-effacing style manages to bring out such colour and detail from his contributors. There is, in the case of Janet Baker's film, for example, and now in this latest documentary I've seen in preview, an honesty, authenticity and sincerity from those seen speaking that is quite remarkable. How does one go about doing that exactly? Where does one learn how to do it? What is the shortest question one needs to ask and how does one need to ask it in order to bring out such rich responses? Bridcut is, for me at least, someone to learn from and in case it needs spelling out, I'm a bit of a fanboy, which is why the interview began like this. Uh, I, I can't tell you how excited I am to speak to you. <laughs> I, I hope that's not not a bad way of starting. I have actually, uh, I've read some notes. Uh, I've 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 watched watched the High Tink doc, and and unusually for me, I have written some notes and some things that I desperately want to ask you. But I suppose, really, the first thing is, is how did you get into all of this? Why do you do the thing that you do? Um, that's a very difficult question. I mean, it, it, it's, it's a sort of rather roundabout way that I've, um, that I've come into it, I suppose. Um, I, I used to work in current affairs for the BBC, and... Um, I then sort of gravitated from that to doing contemporary history. And the first music thing that I did was I, I was doing a, um, a film for the series called People's Century, which went out in the late 90s. Um, and my episode was about the civilian experience of war, of the Second World War. And I was in St. Petersburg um, to do something about the Leningrad Symphony by Shostakovich, and um, well, but also mainly about this, the siege of Leningrad, 
that there'd been in the in for several years in the war and the terrible privations that people had had and the way that the orchestra had been pulled together when they were on really on their uppers to to perform various pieces including um, a performance of the Leningrad Symphony and so I, I thought, well, it'd be a good idea to try and get the orchestra to the, the St. Petersburg Philharmonic to play a bit of the symphony. So I, I got in touch with Yuri Temokhanov, who was their principal conductor. And he said, yes, in fact, we're, we're working on that symphony at the moment. That's fine. You can come, you'll have 15 minutes at the start of the rehearsal to, to record a little bit. I only wanted a, you know, a short little extract. And, um, well, it wasn't at the beginning of the rehearsal. It was, it was rather in the middle, and I was a bit concerned um, as we started filming. There were various concerns I had. One was that the um, that I knew that they'd already been playing for an hour and a half, and I, you know, under British system, that would mean it was time for a break. Yeah. And I rather gingerly said to him, um, "Are you going to take a break now?" He said. He looked at me very sternly and said, "The orchestra will take a break when I tell them to take a break." <laughs> You know, that was a Russian approach. And, and we, we, to my relief, we carried on filming. And um, the trouble was that the floor in that hall squeaked horribly. And we had, I had, you know, I only had a documentary camera. And I think I had a, um, a small camera to give me a wide shot. But basically, my cameraman was trying to walk around on the stage during this, while we were filming, and every time he moved, there was the most terrible squeak on the floor. I don't know how you can actually have a concert hall where with such a, um, a loud floor. <laughs> Anyhow, we did it, and it worked. And that was the first time I'd ever recorded an orchestra. Um, very, very sort of basic. But it was actually, um, it led a, a few years later to my doing a film about Benjamin Britten called Britain's Children, which is my first sort of venture into a full music film. And it was something I'd always wanted to do, was to work in music because it's a great hobby. And so there's nothing better than to be, um, than to be paid to, to do your hobby. <laughs> what, did and, the, uh, what did the experience uh, filming St. Petersburg give you? I mean, you, you recall the story, but I'm wondering what, what impact it had on you then um professionally i mean did it did it spur motivation well, did it 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 was i realized what a challenge it was to film an orchestra which i'd never really thought about before and of course i'd only ever seen um orchestras being filmed like the proms where you've got you know eight cameras and um and it's sort of I mean, it's, it's difficult and complicated but it's um you know you're never short of of a shot and suddenly I realized that that was not going to be the league I would ever be in. Um, I'm that that's not my, my bag really. I've only ever done that once I think when it was, I wasn't directing it. Um, and so documentary filming is very different and, um, and it was a real challenge and it remains that, I mean, I learn every time I film an orchestra, um, I learn more more tricks or sometimes relearn old old tricks which I've forgotten because it's it's really it's really difficult and it's it's a challenge every time and I remember doing a later film about Benjamin Britten called Britain's Endgame 
and we were filming the BBC concert orchestra in um, in a hall in in um, northwest London, Watford, what the Watford Coliseum? That's right. And my camera, you know, it, it it was very very difficult because you don't get any rehearsal time. The orchestra turns up about two minutes before the start of the session, and you sort of plan your shots with a whole lot of empty chairs. And then you find, of course, that they're blocking all the shots and things don't work. And so after about half an hour, we were moving cameras around. My cameraman, I was sort of outside looking at monitors. And my cameraman said to me, he, well, he told me later, fortunately, he just passed the back desk of the first violins who'd said, this is total chaos, isn't it? <laughs> and I realised that... Um, I realised that uh, it wasn't only me that thought it was chaos. Um, but I've been reassured by talking to other people who filmed orchestras, and they all say the same. It's a real nightmare. The first three-quarters of an hour of filming an orchestra with documentary crew is exhausting and frightening. Mm -hmm. And then it starts to settle down, and you start to, um, you start to make it work. And um, as long as you've got a, co a compliant conductor, who's not going to get angry with you because it's chaos at the beginning. Um, that's very important to have a good conductor who's sympathetic. Is there, <laughs> is there then, uh, does that, just picking up on the word compliant, does that then suggest that even though officially the conductor is the leader in that space, I wonder whether the dynamic shifts a bit, both for the conductor and for somebody like you, when a documentary film crew comes in. I mean, are you, as a as a film crew, are you coming in pointing cameras at something already going on, or or is there a sort of an implied agreement that this is a slightly different dynamic for this for this particular that, rehearsal? Well, there's a huge difference between whether you have um, asked to film the orchestra, you know, to, to, you've called the session. Mm -hmm or whether you're filming something that's already happening. Now, with Bernard Heiting, um, we filmed him in rehearsal and in performance, and all those things were happening anyway. And so, he, you know, he was in charge. It wasn't a question of my saying to him, sorry, could you do that section at the end <laughs> of the slow movement? <laughs> Would have loved to have seen that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I said to him at the beginning, I said, look, I just explained to you where the microphones are and where the cameras are going to be. He said, I don't want to know. <laughs> just just carry on, do it. I don't want to know. And that was very helpful because, you know, you then I then knew that he was just going to do what he was going to do and we would fit round it. Um, it's very different if you've called the session. And we did, some years ago, we did a film about Elgar and we filmed the BBC Symphony Orchestra in a church in northwest London, North London. And... Um, it was conducted by Edward Gardner and it was tricky because the orchestra didn't really like going to that church. I discovered later this was because of the parking. The parking problems were, were a bit difficult and so that was, you know, was a bit of a no-no. But they were terrific actually when they, once they got going. But it was, it was in the winter and we turned up the heating in the church to, because it was jolly cold. But the trouble is, as all the equipment was coming in in the morning, the temperature of the church went down. And I became very anxious that, it, you know, somebody was going to say it's too cold to play. And um, so we brought in some heaters. The heaters could only be on when we weren't filming because it was they made so much noise. And 
my, my floor manager was wandering around with a large woolly scarf. I said to her, you must take that off. <laughs> you, you mustn't look as though it's cold. You've got to look really warm. <laughs> so we got, you know, the, the orchestra were brilliant in that. But the, I'm slightly wandering off the point because the point was the conductor on that occasion um, was very happy to, when I was still fiddling around trying to sort out camera positions, he was rehearsing the orchestra. And so the time was being used very productively. But there was one time where I, I really relied on him to take control, which was when we had this wonderful shot of, of, um, of a pull, of pull focus through the harp strings to the clarinet and the clarinet's music. And when we came to do this, I found that on, on the clarinet stand was a copy of The Sun. <laughs> and um, which he then removed, you know, just before playing. And I thought, now, what do I do in this situation? Um, and I rang, we had a sort of old-fashioned telephone to speak to the conductor, and I said, look, Ed, could you tell the first clarinet to remove his copy of The Sun? I don't want to see it again. And so he, he said, you know, I thought it's better coming from him than coming from me, really. And the whole orchestra, of course, laughed. And I think the clarinet felt a bit stupid. It was a bit peculiar. <laughs> yeah, a bit of an HR issue. Someone's being humiliated. <laughs> the broadcast orchestra used to have cameras around all the time. Yeah, I yeah. suspect. I suspect he was just testing me to see what I would do. <laughs> um, are those are those choices about whether you call the session or whether you are um, whether you are observing, if you like? Are they? Are they deliberate editorial choices or are they sort of pragmatic decision-making that then influences how the, the narrative plays out in a documentary, do you think? It's, it's pragmatic. I mean, it's basically, it's better to call the session yourself because in terms of filming documentary, particularly about, you know, about a composer, say, you want lots of short extracts. And if you're observing a rehearsal, you're going to get one movement rehearsed, you know, bits of it over, and it's not going to give you the variety. So I, it's one of the lessons I learned very fast was don't try and film whole movements. People always say to me, oh, we'd love to see the rest of the movement, you know, let's put it as a DVD extra or something. I think, I said, no, we recorded 36 bars and, you know, maybe there's two bars either side and that's it because you've, you've got to get some, some chunks done. And that's where you need a, com a conductor who's going to be sympathetic to A, to the choices, which you discuss with him, obviously, um, but also um, to be sympathetic to the idea that you're only going to have two or three takes at each extract. That's all you can spare the time for. Um, you know, and that means it's not perfect. You, but we're not trying to do um, a DVD performance recording we're not doing a cd recording we're doing a documentary and so you know i think i think the audience accept accept that there's going to be some limitations on that i'm not they don't think about it but subconsciously there's a, a perception that um you know this is not an ideal recording um situation and you you do the best you can. We we with the Heiting film, we filmed him rehearsing with the Netherlands Radio Philharmonic, who were terrific. And it was their first rehearsal of um, Bruckner's 
Seventh Symphony. And that was fascinating because he hadn't worked. I mean, he does work with them every now and then, but he hadn't worked with them for some time, a year or two. And so it was, you know, it was first principles in a way. And um, it it was a really, it was, it was really fascinating to see how that worked. And he, um, he, you know, as I say, he was very receptive to letting us do what we wanted to do. But he didn't, and he didn't sort of interfere in, in, in anything. We didn't interfere with him. We just observed. It, it worked in that way really well because we got something totally authentic. But, but you, the thing with documentary is I know that I'm not going to have to cover every note with a picture from the orchestra mm. because it's documentary and you've sometimes got people talking over the music or you've got you've got the music is illustrated in some other way. You've got archive film, all that sort of thing. And so I always say to my cameraman, I'm normally I would work in perform recording a performance with maybe three cameramen. But on this occasion, we're filming a rehearsal. It was one. And we had two other cameras, fixed cameras in the, in the hall. And um, I say, look, don't worry. We're not trying to cover a hundred percent here. If we get 80%, I'll be really thrilled. And actually, we, you know, we had amazing coverage, even from just from one cameraman and those two fixed cameras as well. And it's it's thrilling when that works, but it's it's high risk. Um, I want to ask you about uh something that struck me when I was watching the Heitink documentary yesterday. Uh, which reminded me of something I think I saw in the Janet Baker documentary, which was this this uh, this theme, if you like, that see that I feel as though I see in your work, which is sort of uh, presenting an artist uh, in a I want to say a vulnerable way. I don't mean that you are making them vulnerable. It's just that actually you see them stripped away of, of that you see them as normal human beings. Um, and uh, I suspect that maybe I am driving at what documentary is about. But but certainly I saw it with Janet Baker, uh, and and absolutely with um, the bits from Hiding. And there, and there was a there was a sense that actually there was he was sort of leant slightly forward in his chair. Uh, he looked slightly smaller when he was talking to camera, and he always sort of seemed to look down. And I found that rather, I found that rather touching. Uh, and I wonder whether that is something which is that. Well, first of all, whether I'm reading too much into it—that's question number one. Number two is that is that sort of directed, or is that something that somebody like you stumbles on and goes, "Wow, that's just really touching." Do you understand what I mean? Christ, I hope Not you understand. Really. You don't. Oh. No, it, it's it's. Uh, I'm sorry to say that <laughs> I don't. I don't really direct that. It's it's just it's just observing what's actually happening. And with Bernard Heiting, you know, he's a naturally very diffident man mm. who who has sort of paradoxically great authority on the podium, but he, you know, off the podium, he's very shy, um, and. And he, you know, I think doing an interview like that, it's it's a bit of an ordeal for him. Um, I mean, it's an ordeal for anybody, but but I think it's not, you know, it's not his chosen mode of expression. 
He's not somebody who talks a lot in normal life, and he certainly doesn't talk to orchestras much. It's done an awful lot through gesture, through his facial expression. And his children in the, in the documentary talk about that, that, that it was the same with the orchestra as it was with them, that, that there's a lot that is unsaid, but still spoken. And um, it is very touching. Uh, and, you know, with Janet Baker, it was different. Janet Baker is a much more naturally articulate person. That sounds rude to Bernard Hiding. I don't mean it to be, but I mean, she's, she's a very, she's, a, she collects her thoughts incredibly quickly and speaks um, very, very fluently. Um, but she, she, um, as you say, I mean, it, it was, there were moments of intimacy and well, well, certainly I felt when doing it that, um, you know, that she'd, I was seeing the real her mm. and, and of course, these great artists, we put them on pedestals. I mean, some, some artists put themselves on pedestals, <laughs> but um, I think audiences naturally do. And, and that is when part of it, though, isn't it? I mean, really, us, us what, as audience members putting them on pedestals is, yes. even if it's not intended that way, that is part of the performance. That that's almost like the performance contract, isn't it? We we kind of expect yes. that. I think orchestras don't necessarily put them on pedestals. <laughs> I think they're a bit more discriminating, and it can, <laughs> can be the opposite um, uh, at times. But I mean, of course, when orchestras do really admire their artists, then that, that's, that's wonderful. Um, if they don't, you, you soon sort of discover this in the performance, really. But um, I think the thing is that television is naturally a very intimate medium. And it's partly the, the way that you do it. And, and um, interviewing somebody, it's all close. I mean, under COVID restrictions, it has to be a little bit further apart now. But Normally, the camera is quite close to the, the subject and the interviewer is too. And you could do it at great distance, but, you know, and you'd sort of be shouting at each other. Um, and that's, in a way, how most of us see these artists, because we always see that unless you're sitting in the front row of the festival hall, um, you know, you, you see them at a distance. And so there's always that, that um, sort of, there's a there's a barrier of sorts between you and them and television breaks that down and uh, you know that's one of the exciting things that you can actually get close to people when you were capturing um the material for janet baker's documentary did you did you know i mean i know how i felt at the end of it and for, for those people who haven't seen it i'm not going to give the game away but i did did find it heartbreaking did you know at the time of capturing it that it was i mean did it touch you then in the same way that oh, it touched somebody like me when I watched it? Oh, yes. I mean, obviously, I had no idea that was going to happen. I, I've been very anxious about suggesting that um, that Keith, her husband, should take part in the film. Um, and, you know, and she was anxious too, but in the end, they decided that the film would be incomplete without him. Mm. And the scene you're talking about validated that completely. You realise that that was the completeness 
it, it, it explains so much about her career and the way she the way she performed and um, the empathy that people felt with her when hearing her or watching her sing and um, but it was yes it was at, it, you know you 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 hardly dare breathe at moments like that mm. and that there's always that feeling you know that you you don't want to you don't want to milk something that's very emotional but nor and, and nor do you want to charge in with a with a crass question and break the mood mm. and so it's very difficult and you have to you know you're making sort of instant decisions about do you say anything and you don't really know what the camera is doing because you can't look away you know it's there's a spell there that you you can't even and although i've got a monitor down beside me if i sort of look down at the monitor when something emotional is happening then it you feel a bit voyeuristic mm-hmm. so it's it, it you can't construct things like that anyway no. um you, and and i i knew that it was going it was it was difficult for them um to do a joint interview but it's something they they wanted to do and um yes and you just you know you 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 it's a spell that you can't break and you just wait you know you have to sort of wait and see what happens uh i i mentioned that because i was reminded of it when i when i saw the 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 end sequence of of high tink talking about his memories of um uh, the Second World War, uh, and it struck me that actually there was a there was a big sort of explanatory piece there where where he revealed his experience and 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 that too was was actually it, it's quite upsetting to see someone of that stature and and that age sort of recording something which is clearly still very raw. Uh, uh, but it, it sort of there, but you mentioned the word completeness, uh, and I said in relation to the Janet Baker thing. Um, and I suppose that that was the sense that I got from from that sequence in in the Hiding documentary. Yes, I, I mean it. It's not something I, um, that I've heard him talk about much before, and and I've certainly I felt it was very, it was still raw, as you say, and really, I mean, anybody who lived through those years can never forget them. Um, at the same time, he was anxious. He 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 said to me afterwards. He said, "You know, I don't want to suggest that our suffering in the war was, of, you know, anything compared with the suffering of other people." Because he said we were lucky. Um, you know, we. Um, I mean, as the film makes clear, mm. um, he he his relatives escaped. Um, escaped lightly and although he went through the privations of Amsterdam in the hunger winter and so on his family was better off and you know that they were not struggling in the way that other people were and he was very anxious that that we didn't suggest that it was uh, you know that he was trying to claim mm. a sort of um, a premium in suffering I mean mm. he he said you know it was it was difficult but other people had so much worse problems yeah, yeah, I, I uh, that that message is is quite clear, um, <laughs> just to reassure you. Uh, but um, 
but it was still very sort of like oh I it, one of those moments where you want to reach reach through the screen and just go it's all right it's okay I don't know what I can do to to make this better but it's all right uh, and that's that's a strange thing considering that he's someone that I have absolutely no knowledge of at all um the other thing that really uh, hit home again watching it um and here I may overly flatter you so brace yourself um is that uh there are sequences in this and the Janet Baker and possibly in Britain's Endgame I don't know I can't remember where where you have people listening to the music and annotating it without using any musical terms whatsoever and and I find personally I find that really powerful because that that really plays into something that I believe which is you only have to hear someone talk passionately about the thing that they love and that should be sufficient for other people to go oh I want to go and experience that um how did you hit upon that format or was that also pragmatic or accidental i suspect you're going to say it was accidental no fun enough it, it i've i've used that technique which we call for as a shorthand we call it complay sort of commentating while it's playing um i hit on that through a, a film that i was doing it wasn't, wasn't musical at all it was a film i did about roald dahl and I got, um, I'm, I, I was, I've always been fussed by arts films that talk about um, art, you know, artists or cre- creative people, but fight shy of the art itself. They're very keen to do biography, but not really get to grips with art, mm-hmm. with the art. I mean, it's easy to do it with a visual art. You can do that with paintings and sculpture and so on. But with poetry or with um with literature and to a large extent with music, it's quite, it's a challenge and it's, it's difficult and yet it's essential because we're not interested in people's lives as lives. Um, we're interested in, in how it illustrates the art. Um, and with Roald Dahl, I, I, I sort of, I was fussed about, you know, how we were going to get his writing into a film about him. And I thought, well, maybe we get contributors to read little extracts, favourite bits of theirs. Sometimes it was poems, sometimes it was children's stories, sometimes it was um, it, it was some of his adult stories. And and they embraced this very readily, and they would read it, and we we filmed them both reading it out loud and also reading it silently, and we mixed between the two. And I, I saw that actually there was great power in watching someone's face while they were reading the words, um, you know, while they were reading them silently to themselves. And you got, you could, you could sense where you were. The only thing is it's absolutely essential that you don't cheat, that you keep the picture absolutely in sync with, with the reading. And um, that's what we, we learned with um in Roald Dahl, and I started doing it, I think the first time I did it was in a film I did about Vaughan Williams. Um, this was 12 years ago. And again, it was essential. It's so easy to say, oh, we'd like to film someone listening to music, and you just sit them in an armchair. And in some cases, you might not even play the music, just <laughs> film them looking out the window. Um, but if you play the music, then you can cut it around to suit yourself, and it never works that, because it feels phony. 
And once you, you know, I, I did this with Colin Davis listening to, oh, um, yes. to Elgar's Violin yes. Concerto. And he was virtually immobile while he sat and yeah. listened to it. And then when the violin came in at the beginning of the first movement, his sort of eyebrow twitched. Mm. And it was, a, you know, and you knew that there was a moment of emotion for him at that moment. Mm. And um, I did, in the same film, I did it with Gerald Northrop Moore, who is the great authority on Elgar. And he he was rather unhappy about doing this. So I think he thought it was, it was a bit of a cheap shot. And, but anyhow, he agreed to listen to the last movement of the second symphony. Now, he said he wanted to listen to the whole movement, which was not my... <laughs> preferred idea it's quite long quite busy and he told me that there was a bit i never knew this but there's a bit in the in the second symphony where the trumpet plays and this is a tradition in in english orchestras the trumpet plays i can't remember now the details but he plays the notes differently from what's in the score he comes in earlier or something and it's it's a tradition that is not in the published score and he told me about this and he sat there listening to this piece completely impassive. And there was not a, a, a sort of flicker of an eyebrow, nothing. And I thought, this is absolutely hopeless. <laughs> and then when it came to this moment when the trumpet came in, he gave me a huge kick in the shins under the table. <laughs> but again, stayed completely impassive. I didn't use it, but I, <laughs> I, I realised that was the the moment for him it was uh it was hearing somebody talking about i'm sorry i can't remember the contributor's name but uh hearing someone talking about beethoven six uh and, and the part, sorry it was emmanuel axe the pianist okay should have known that i mean i did say i didn't do very much research um uh i i mean you know i know i know the pastoral symphony quite well i suppose i had never it had never dawned on me to listen in that much detail to that particular moment in the movement and to be able to discern between the fact that i think you were saying that the string players were the violins were were doing rubato whilst everything else was sort of maintaining a uh, um a regularity if you like he said it far more articulately than i do uh, but I, I adore that detail, and what really struck me was that actually, it's not very much. There, there's not very much technicalness being discussed, uh, and yet it just sort of opens up the the joy of this particular art form, uh, and also yeah. his 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 um, high tinks ability, obviously. I I love that too. He was so eloquent in talking about it, and it was. It was nice because he wasn't talking about a piano concerto. He was talking about a symphony, mm. which, you know, as a pianist, um, you, you might think, oh, he only talk about piano concertos. And clearly he, what he does is when he's played um, a concerto with Heiting, he goes into the audience for the, for the second half of the concert. And, uh, you know, which not all soloists do. And, uh, you know, he loves going to listen. And he did on the occasion we filmed him. He, he was doing the Beethoven fourth piano concerto and for the Bruckner symphony after the interval, he was in the audience and he, he's sort of, I mean, such is his musical sensibility that of course he can see that and hear this going on very slight rubato where the pulse is constant, but, but there is a fle flexibility and the way the strings can do it is not something you can easily 
sort of conduct. And he says, I don't know how Heitink does it, but somehow, and he says he doesn't know how he does it either, but it happens. But the effect, the effect of hearing someone talk about that is it makes me want to go off and listen to that. It makes me want to go off and listen to an entire back catalogue of Beethoven six performances and recordings uh, in order to listen out for that particular detail and whether someone else has done it or do do you see what I mean? I, I think there is something in the way in which, people extract that kind of detail which is quite infectious uh yes i mean for me as a filmmaker that's the highest praise because if there's any point in doing films about music it's to it's to persuade people to go and listen to the music Hmm. um sometimes to as you say to familiar pieces and listening to them with new ears or going and searching out um pieces they didn't know and that is really thrilling and it happens to me in doing the films i mean i did a film about the the requiem as a musical form and i came across i mean in the research there are so many hundreds of requiems that have been written over the past 500 years but i came across one that i didn't know at all which i think is the most fabulous piece and um it's by Ildebrando Pizzetti. I don't know if you know it, but it's it's he wrote this in the twenties or thirties, something like that. It's it, it's an absolutely enchanting piece. And fun enough, I the other day I was listening during lockdown. I, I've been listening to a lot of music, which is one of the advantages of having a lot of time at home. Um, and I fished out. A, a really fabulous recording of this piece, the Pizzetti Requiem, um, by the Westminster Cathedral Choir with James O'Donnell conducting, um, which is uh, 20, 25 years old, this recording. It's absolutely fabulous, to coin a phrase. I mean, and I, it completely blew me away all over again. And it was something I only came across because of researching for the, for that film. What a great! And so you it, you know, if it throws me back to the music, I, I can't, I, I you know I can't complain. <laughs> uh, is there anything else you'd like to say that I haven't asked you, sir? Well, I'd just like to say that Bernard Heitink, who's been a sort of idol of mine for a long time, um, I first heard him conduct. I th- the first concert I went to of his, I think, was in 1974 at the Proms when he did, fun enough, the Beethoven Pastoral and the Britain's Spring Symphony, um, which was really rather um, intriguing pairing. And um, and I, I greatly enjoyed it. And I've been to a lot of concerts of his since. And so it was a tremendous you know, thrill for me to to be able to observe this man working with an orchestra, both in rehearsal and performance, and seeing, you know, at the age of 90, just his command was quite extraordinary and his ear was quite extraordinary. You might think, you know, there have been plenty of examples of, of great conductors who, you know, they do live to a long time very, very often, um, but they start to go off. And, um, you know, there were the famous stories of Otto Klemperer, who, you know, was sort of manhandled onto the podium because he was so... Uh, disabled and um, and he you know I knew a player in the Philharmonia who played with him and he was just 
they said, you know, we just follow the leader the whole time. Yes, I, because... I, I recall a similar anecdote being shared with me at the beginning of my career about another conductor, and it always struck me as a bit like, well, but so he's just there for marketing then. I don't... That's, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, Heitink, absolutely not. He was He was crystal clear about what he was trying to do, always trying to get the orchestra to play softer, and, and this is Bruckner, you know, and you think Bruckner's about loud, <laughs> loud and brassy. But he, I, I never appreciated the incredible intricacy and beauty of the scoring of Bruckner. In, in the, in, this is in the Seventh Symphony. And absolute, and he brings out these lines and the way that he lets the, the woodwind, you know, their little solos, and they, he just sort of hands it over to them. And yet... There's there's this pulse going on, and he's it, it's he's inviting them to be soloists um, at the same time as having the, the the big picture himself, and that was you know that was a huge thrill. And he Bernard Heitink and his wife Patricia were so accommodating, very hospitable, and trusting as we sort of invaded their home in London on several occasions and very patient. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I just, uh, I'm so grateful to them. And, you know, I'm in awe of this man. And of course, really sad that we won't see him on the podium ever again now. Thank you very much. I have really enjoyed our conversation. I've uh, long admired your work, sir. Uh, and so when Eleanor yes, suggested not. to me, uh, would you like to speak to John Bridcut? I mean, I, she will concur. Uh, I, I sent some very excitable emails to her. Uh, so it has been an absolute <laughs> pleasure. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I greatly enjoyed it too. Thank you.